Good afternoon and welcome to Belgian Business. I'm Kate and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by multiple ultra marathon completer and pain whisperer Richard Richmond Stace. Good afternoon and welcome Richmond. Hi, how are you doing? Good to good to be here. So Richmond, um, you have a very interesting background. You are now a pain specialist, or very much chronic pain specialist practitioner. I would say physiotherapist, but I think you've actually extended beyond what the typical definition of a physiotherapist is. But your initial background is in nursing. Can you just describe to the listeners an overview of your career and what's brought you to this, this position? Well, it's um, it's quite lengthy, so I have to give a short version because um, otherwise everyone might might fall asleep. Um, but and it was certainly wasn't planned this way. It just sort of rolled out. Um, I, I guess doing one thing and then thinking mm, maybe maybe something else I need I need I need and you know that's part of the human condition. I guess is always wanting to be somewhere else. But yeah, it started with with nursing, and that was a that was a big change. Um, you know, I was very lucky with my upbringing and schooling so going into that world and and seeing you know people suffering in, in lots of different ways was a was a huge eye-opener and I, I very quickly made it my business to see as much as I could and just go around and uh, and get involved um so there was the training but I also um was a it was called nursing auxiliary then you were like you know the helping nurses on the on the ward and I used to do a, a fair amount of hours um on top of the the training doing that i mean you know, partly it was sort of supporting yourself financially but but it was also a great experience um doing that and yeah you just saw and met people and it was incredible and i had some amazing tutors that that were now when i look back were hugely influential there's a, there's a handful of people i can think of who have massively influenced you know my thinking and and how i how i see things really and there were definitely two or three from the nursing days. Um, and you were a general nurse. Yeah, it was it was adult adult nursing, but you did lots of other things as well. Um, I remember really enjoying the uh, you know a psychiatry placement um, and working there. I remember the it was a, it was called learning disabilities that the placement there, um, and that was working in a in a residential home psychiatric unit i mean they were doing lots of ect and things so you know to see all that stuff some of it's controversial but to see all that stuff and to be have been involved in it and experienced it was you know it was so valuable um in in now because the the variety of things that, that come up it just means that i guess i'm pretty comfortable with most things i mean i'm rarely surprised by what people tell me because i suppose i've been doing it for 30 odd years you, you know you do see a lot in that time um but being comfortable with yourself in order to be present with the person that you're there to help is is key um particularly with sort of chronic conditions uh chronic suffering well i certainly recall as a a young and probably really quite experienced physiotherapist having sort of almost a barrier around me that I didn't actually want to hear the full extent of what was going on in somebody's life because I wasn't sure I could handle it yeah and the training isn't really about that as, as I'm mean, certainly mine wasn't and, and I, I think that's generally the, the experience unless you have a, an educator who's you know, that way inclined perhaps um, but but generally 
you know, physio sort of moved a bit, hasn't it? But it's still pretty biomedical in most respects. I mean, even if it is called biopsychosocial, you know, people still often revert to the that bit of the model they're most comfortable with, and that's usually the, the physical and all this kind of separating things out into silos and body mind separation. I mean, that's just not how it is in reality. Um, which, which you know, immediately takes people down the wrong path, uh, in my view. You're a keen advocate that we really understand that we are one living entity rather than like a lollipop or a Lego man whose head clicks on top of our body. We are one entire being. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose my view, and this is this is radical, but if you're, you know, if you have Buddhist leanings, that kind of thing, it, it won't be so radical um, that we 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 just have experiences. So you, you're a matter of even, you know, my, I experience the world. I experience myself. I experience my body. That that's me. I I'm the one having this, this experience. So my body, my, you know, appears to me just like this computer screen, this computer appears to me, your voice appears to me. Um, you know, we are a matter of experience. Um, but it can take, I guess, a while to get to the point. Now, I'm not, this wouldn't necessarily be the kind of thing I would get into straight away if I was working with someone of course um but we do just have one experience and the the mind is in my view very much embodied so we we think with our body um we we think according to how our body is um but but it's it's not kind of one or the other it's there's a absolute integration or interrelatedness it just all comes together so I just think that we need to see that we need to see the whole person and and I know a lot of people say that and you see it written but it needs to be followed through in the way that things are approached um not not just uh you know like values on the wall they need to be lived what was it then that led you to think that nursing wasn't quite the answer for what you were searching for and that you needed or wanted to um pursue um a career in a well i think you went on to do sports science if i'm right or something like that and uh, but becoming into the more physical realm i'm guessing from from your nursing background yeah well i, was, I mean I, I was very much into sport i played a lot of sport you know i sort of thought about that once i thought about all different careers possibilities and um and, and i knew the nursing wasn't going to be for me um as a long-term career but it was an amazing first step and so I did the sport rehab and sports science degree, um, which was, you know, that was fun. Um, but it was th at that point, it was hard to get recognition. I mean, I was very lucky. I was very lucky with various things um, in that I, I did pick up work quickly at quite a high level. Um, just right place, right time. I don't know, really. Uh, it's difficult to say, isn't it? But um, but these sort of things lead lead on, um, and and then I thought, well, I better do the I better do the physio degree to get that, that ticket, and that's literally all I did it just to get the the ticket to practice physiotherapy because there was a lot of resistance from physios towards sport rehabilitation, um, which you know, I can see both sides of the fence now, and and the two have really come together over the years. There's been a lot of work on that, and that's a good thing. Um, but physios are, are, are poorly trained in, in things like exercise therapy, conditioning, strength and conditioning, unless they have a particular interest. You know, there was very little in my, I was a good, you know, I went to Kings, you know, it's, it's one of the flagship, but it, there was none, really, 
very little training in that. You know, I had experience before because I'd done a, basically done a degree in that. Um, but there, so there was a lot of resistance. Um, and um, so I, I, you know, got that ticket and it was it was generally that was probably the most underwhelming of my degrees was the physio one. Um, but I did meet some very cool people. So people. tell me why the physio degree was, I also went to King's and also um, had a previous life before physio. So this is no way a, um, I, I don't want this to turn into a sort of sabotaging the King's course particularly, but I found no, the physio no. degree, physio degree underwhelming also. I felt it lacked rigour in comparison to what I'd done previously. I don't know what you felt was missing from the profession, but it, it, to me, it just lacked rigour. I think that's the best word I could use. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, this isn't the thing about Kings. I think just just generally, I mean, it's it's moving on. There's people doing some really good stuff. You know, Roger Carrier in Nottingham. You know, there's people with Mick Thacker, you know, they're really mm. thinking about moving things on. Um, but there was there was a lot of outdated stuff being taught, um, you know, all those machines and, and all that stuff. And there was a real lack of training and commu good communication. Uh, things like motivation interviewing could easily have been in there. And what a wonderful way of being that is. Um, yeah, a lot of, you know, getting goniometers out and, and spending hours training on those. It's like, well, you know, it's. There's so many other things that could be done that are better. Now, this is quite a long time ago now. This is like the late 90s, so it is a while ago. Um, and um, But I just see it as an issue with the system, not not with people, not not with Kings or any particular university. That's that's sort of how it was. Mm. Um, and when, you know, when I chat to people, they say similar things about that. Um, but you know there were some really good people at King's. Um, you know, I have people on my course um, who have gone on and doing some good good stuff, and and some of the lecturers as well, um, really really good, and and doing some excellent work. And and Mick in particular, of course, has you know been a, a friend and mentor since then. Um, and I can't thank him. He's you know one of the main guys behind what I've been what I've been doing. So what then led you down a career path of having a very specific interest in chronic suffering, chronic pain, chronic conditions? Well, so the, that interest started when I was a nurse, actually, um, and particularly around the pain stuff. And then, and then it kind of went off a bit, I suppose, getting into the sports world. Um, and then, and then it, I mean, it really was Mick at, at King's. And I remember there was a lecture on, on I can still remember, actually, he gave a lecture on pain. And I was just like, ah, oh, you know, this is all coming together now. This is this is. And he set up the uh, the master's in pain science, it's called pain science in society. And uh, I was like, well, got to do that. Got to do that. So I when I finished, I, I pretty much started that straight away, I think. Anyway, fairly soon after. And so I spent a couple of years, um, you know, back at Kings or carried on at Kings, um, doing that with, with Mick, and that was oh, that was brilliant. It was a brilliant course, amazing, um, and that was with the whole intent really of, of taking it of taking it forwards, um, and yeah, it just felt like the right thing to do. It felt like that was that was the purpose. That was sort of and that's remained. That's kind of behind everything I do, although. 
you know, obsessed. I work with people individually. I'm involved in all sorts of sort of projects and bits and bobs, but it's all about pain and changing the way society thinks about pain. So what are the most common societal misconceptions about pain and how, leading on from that, would you prefer that we viewed pain or understood pain? I mean, that's, that's a massive question, uh, but, a, but a good one, obviously. Um, you know, the, the biomedical model predominates and that essentially is the search for some sort of organic or structural or pathological explanation for, for pain. But that misses the point of what it is. You know, pain's a lived experience. Um, you know, it's something that our body systems are generating as a best guess to explain what's going on in our liberal world in, in that moment. Um, so, you know, people think that pain is uh, representative of what's going on in their body, like a one for one. That it's It's, you know, perhaps an accurate. A measure of, of damage or, or something else or you know pathology or something wrong um but but it isn't you know there's, and there's plenty of examples when you know pain is out of proportion to the you know the, the damage in a paper cut can be really horrid can't it hmm. um and then people can have really severe injuries and, and not really have any pain and obviously massive experience in between you know essentially it's very individual everyone has their own experience of pain just like everyone has their own experience of themselves in the world we got what eight billion people on the planet that's eight billion experiences and it's changing every moment and so some of the some of the thinking that we have i mean first of all i think in our society there's this idea that we shouldn't suffer and we should be happy you know i mean what nonsense that is um, you know, life turns up in different ways. Everybody suffers right right from the outset. Suffering is part of life, just like air. Um, and uh, we try and go around it and, and avoid it, but it's you can't. You suffer for, for different reasons. So, you know, illness, injury, pain, obviously. Um, separation from, from people, loved ones, disappointments, frustrations, traffic. You know, you name it. It happens to us every day. Now, obviously, there's varying degrees um but we we suffer so we can we can keep sort of you know pretending that we shouldn't and and that just adds more to it because we feel you know we have this expectation that we won't and the reality is different and that just creates suffering um or we learn to roll with it you know we learn many different skills but the first one's got to be seeing things as they as they are rather than how you want them to be um and these are our superpowers really because you know, once you see life as it is rather than how you want it, everything starts to change. Because remember, the everything's embodied. So all of our experiences are with a body that we yeah. have. And actually, the experiences we have are shaped by the type of body we have and how it is in, in that moment and the types of thoughts. So, you know, action, perception um, and thinking or cognition, they, you know, they all kind of come together and they all sort of shape each other. Can you there's, give there's a complex an... dynamic. Can you give an example of a situation whereby what you're just describing is um, the, the, the perception of how somebody might relate to a situation is shifted and that changes their view of the world? Yeah, I mean, I call these insights and I often say, you know, insights are the catalysts of change. Um, overcoming chronic pain, which doesn't necessarily mean you don't experience any pain at all. It just means that it's no longer the predominant thing overall in your in your life. And, um, you know, people get very stuck with their beliefs about pain, their pain and their life and, and the world. 
And that stuckness in thinking is part of the stuckness with pain. They're not, they're not separate things. So, you know, our beliefs, expectations, prior experiences, where your retention is, all of these things are shaping your pain experience or take a step back from that, the likelihood of feeling pain and then and then what it's what it's like. Um but um but not everyone's gonna believe that. They're gonna go, no, but it's my disc. I've seen it on the on a scan. And you're like, yeah, I know. So we have to help people to to jostle. That's a, um so there's some great work by a guy called Mark Miller who's been very influential and we've um we we chat a lot about these things. He used the words jostle, jostle these sticky, sticky beliefs. Um and actually, that's what we're trying to do. You know, the systems are kind of got stuck generating or predicting similar, not the same, because nothing can ever be the same, but, but, you know, similar experiences. Nothing wrong with the prediction mechanisms, um, but what's being predicted is just not really great for that person. You know, they're, they're struggling. So we we jostle it, and we jostle it by learning something new. So the, the our worldview starts to change. Uh, you know, a, a sort of a more contemporary example there would be uh, the work with psilocybin. So, you know, magic mushrooms seems to kind of unlock that kind of stuckness in order to start making better predictions. Um, like, actually, maybe I'm doing a bit better than I thought. You know, a lot of people who, who experience chronic pains, particularly when we first meet, um, don't realize how well they're doing. Just the fact they've got to the appointment, for example, or they're dressed or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So they continually feel that they're not doing very well because there's an expectation reality mismatch. They have this expectation that they should be better. Well, I tried meditation a couple of times and it didn't make any difference. That's an expectation reality mismatch. Mm. Or, you know, this kind of idea that, well, I've done that thing, like it's the end result rather than no, to overcome chronic pain or any chronic condition really it's a learning process it's it's an active learning process it's what you what based on the kinds of decisions you make every day this is why coaching i see as being you know the way the way forward where we come alongside that person and help them to see things more clearly in different ways and and then make better decisions and then use practical skills and strategies in order to follow that path and notice when they go off the path and then get back on but clearly knowing where they're going, so you have a picture of success, but you know you're not there yet. So you see the top of the mountain, but you're not there yet. You're just taking another step. But everyone wants to be at the top of the mountain. So people spend a lot of time focusing on results. Again, in our society, we're obsessed with results. Results don't exist. They're always imagined futures. So you get lost in that. Meanwhile, you're not even doing the thing that would take you closer to it. And you take your eye off that. And the reality is, even if you're going to climb a mountain in a very well state, it's hard work. I did Hell Vellon the other summer, and it was hard work. I mean, I wasn't injured, I wasn't in pain, but no, it wasn't. Didn't fly up it. I had to work up it. Yeah. So the, the this is it's really hard work because it's work on you. It's it's growth of the of the person, and 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 you know initially. It may be that the person doesn't want to do that. They they just think that, again, this is not a blame thing. This is like the thinking in our society. Going back to your question, you know, where, where's the thinking at? That I'll, well, I'll get some pills or get some interventions, but those things are tiny in, in getting better. 
because um, they only ever bring short-term relief anyway. There's nothing sustained from that. Um, I mean, maybe if it's some sort of disease-modifying medication that's required for an autoimmune condition or inflammatory, you know, that's that's different. But in terms of pain medication, you know, taking a pill, that's, that's a moment to do that. It doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't help you make clearer decisions. Some people say, yeah, but I feel better when I take it. Therefore, I make better decisions. Well, you know, they're, they're different um, skill sets. People need to know how to do things. You know, they know the kinds of things they want to do. They know why it matters. I mean, sometimes you have to have a conversation about that because, you know, linking what you're doing with your values and what's important to you is a really strong motivator, but just don't really know how to do it. And, and often people are given... Um, you know, by well-meaning um, clinicians and, and therapists, you know, exercises to do. Um, but but typically without the nuance and flexibility that's required. Um, and, and exercises just make up such a small part of getting better anyway. Um, and people are often surprised when I say that. So, well, surely, you know, you go to a physio or something and, and you get your exercises. And I say, well, yeah, you, you do. And they are they're part of it. They're a small part. Um, what do you mean a small part? Well, how many hours are you awake a day? Most people are up for 15, 16 hours. How long do you spend doing your exercises? 10 minutes? Okay, there's the there's the formula. That's why you're not going to get better if you think just doing exercises is going for 10 minutes a day. And that's doing them really well, even. You could be really diligent with that. It's not enough. That's just one small part of it. You know, you need specific skills and strategies for the specific things you may want to to achieve. You need the skills of being well and you need skills to to live. So without those bits, it's like trying to, you know, bake a cake with just an egg. You just end up with an egg, maybe a hot one if you put it in the oven. But, you know, you're not going to get a cake. Um, so again, it's this mismatch of expectation and reality. It's the it's the thinking, the beliefs that take the person away from what's needed, and our preferences often play a big role as well. You know, we want things a particular way, um, but that's not how life works, and that's a bitter pill for a lot of people, particularly if they've been led to believe that that you know life can be the way they want it. Those messages are really out there, particularly in our society. If you work hard enough and all these sorts of things. Um, but then you realize that actually most things in life are out of our control. Mm, and there yeah, is a huge... You, you know, just as, you, as you're sat there right now, there's nothing you have to do for life to appear to you. It's just there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you, you hear my voice, there's nothing you have to do. It's amazing, really. That's That's the kind of the amazing bit. Um, so life will turn up for you, however life turns up. The way you relate to it, nah, that's the key. That's the key, or one of. That's one of the biggest and most important insights. You know, when someone gets that and they start asking themselves that question, well, how am I relating to this painful moment? I mean, if it's really severe, then you survive that bit, and we look at different strategies for that. But, but generally speaking, you know, if you become more and more aware and present and aware of what's happening perhaps through meditation practice but there's you know other ways as well um then um then you're in that position to see how you're relating to what's happening that creates that little bit of space to to decide right what's the best thing i can do right now what are my options rather than just getting caught up in it again and again and again and again and this kind of idea that 
you know, a phrase that we, you know, we all use when people know how things are, oh, it's the same. No, nothing can ever be the same because each moment's different. Life wouldn't exist. We'd just all be like statues, you know, it just wouldn't work, would it? So impermanence is a Buddhist tenet. And again, that's such an important insight that each moment is different. Everything's always changing. Pain is a is a complex dynamic because life is a complex dynamic, ever changing. Every pain experience from that person is different each moment, and it's unique. Um, so I want you know, to give a little you... example here, Richmond. So I dislocated my shoulder not too long ago, and I, my background I used to swim, and I, I enjoy swimming a lot. And I noticed a few months ago, I went to the swimming pool to the diving boards with my son, and I wasn't even going off the diving board. I was just going to jump off the side of the pool into the main pool. And I was scared because of my shoulder. I was like, I was so angry with myself at the hesitation. I was like, I'm comfortable in water. I am hesitating about jumping in the pool. And I commented on this to Joanne Elphinstone, and she just said to me, stop being so cross with your shoulder. Be kind to it. Because <laughs> I was angry with this, you know, injury, stopping me do something I was so proficient at automatically. You know, the fact it was a hesitation, I did jump. And it was really interesting. So I very consciously for a number of weeks started to not be not allow myself to be cross with my shoulder. Be kind to your shoulder, Kate. Be kind to your shoulder. Be kind to your shoulder. All sorts of things have opened up since then. I got back in a pool this morning, proper training with a club, which I haven't done for years. And it's just listening to you describing this. It's, yes, yeah, so how was I relating to my shoulder? Frustration and anger that I'd ever dislocated it in the first place. As soon as I started being kind to it, having Joe giving me a talking to, it's a different perception about what is available, what what the arm can do. And that's I, not I me having done exercises. Further, actually. Um, you know, you're, it's, it's not your shoulder, it's you. Mm. And it's, you know, you're not giving your shoulder a talking to, so to speak. You're responding to the part of you that's thinking about it. And, and actually that part of you is protective. That's, that's quite normal. Mm. And, you know, you need that. The, our prerogative is survival, procreation, survival. Um, and that, that thought that, that appears for you, ooh, Maybe this is a bit scary or, you know, that's just getting you to, to think. Now, you, the superpower is to decide whether you need to respond to that in, like this or like that. Mm. Just puts a pause in to think, all right, well, I did dislocate my shoulder. Is this, a, is this okay to do this dive off a 30-meter board or whatever it was? Off the side um, of the pool, worse. Well, well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, in a sense, there's sort of different parts of us, aren't they? Mm. Part of us, you know, even when we're choosing, you know, you might decide to buy a, I don't know, a T-shirt or a dress or something, and, and part of you goes, oh, I like that. And another part of you goes, I'm not sure about that bit. Another part goes, what about that one? And we do all these things sort of going on. Um, and, um, and and we can listen because in a way, I, I am the one who listens to all of or hears all of those different opinions um, and will decide what to do depending on which is the strongest it's very influential you know those voices are very influential um now from a compassion focused therapy perspective which i think is really important there's a couple of things one is we never we don't choose our minds when is i when i say mind i mean embodied so 
Um, you don't choose your mind and you don't choose how it's conditioned by upbringing, schooling, society, friends, family, da, da, da. You don't choose that. So it's getting shaped and, and it's that's continuous. You know, it's shaped through life. The kind of the waking up process is seeing that. So that's kind of like the wisdom piece to see that. But then you've got the compassion piece, which is taking responsibility and and learning about your leanings and working out well, what works and what doesn't, what what brings joy, pleasure, resilience, um, results, success, you know, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. Um, and what's holding me back? What am I what are my limiting beliefs? And identifying those and then learning to let those go which again is learning and process but you know this kind of work is is frequently frequently within chronic health but it's also within peak performance yeah. as well um so there's there's huge crossovers and we can draw from the different fields you know most of the stuff that i do with people is not drawn from the pain field i mean the pain field doesn't really offer huge amounts in terms of helping people move forward as such you know there's a lot of pain science and uh, you know a lot of separated out different sorts of therapies and, and names and uh, all these different things but just look at the figures and you see that you know that's not really working the way we're doing it right now is not really working um yes because you certainly describe or highlighted to me that pain is the number one is a number one global burden it's a massive problem but what i'm also hearing actually is not the problem of pain per se but how we relate to pain and if we can change the constructs that we have about pain and how we help both ourselves and other people suffering in pain shift their perception and their relationship with themselves and the pain experience or the experience of suffering there's a whole other um um experience of life to be lived yeah no absolutely absolutely it is it is requiring a, a big shift in our thinking because there is going to be pain you know the big the way that we live the way that things are there is going to be pain and there is going to be you know if you want to call it chronic pain where it doesn't sort of just go away after after a few weeks but equally chronic pain you can get better you know sometimes completely better um but each person will have their own their own journey and um and that's why we need to shape our care and when i say care i mean like literally everything we do from being with them to listening to helping them understand to guiding and encouraging and, and motivating um you know needs to be very wide it needs to take in the whole person and their lived world and be shaped to them not the other mm. way around and our healthcare system is the other way around. If you've got this, you do those things. Doesn't matter if you're different to that person there, you're both going to do the same things. Um, and then, yeah, but that's because we've only got limited resources. Well, no, you can shape the care. It's not hard. It's not hard to do. Yeah, the patient fact, or the person. It's hard to do it the other way. Yeah, it makes the... it, it's no sense to me at all. Yeah, I often, I often think the patient or the person has become the product for the practitioner to impose their mm. mode on. Yeah, have the technique. You know, we talk all these techniques. Oh, God, that word even makes me go, people, I mean, sometimes people are like, what techniques do you use? I don't use techniques on anyone, you know. It's a, you know, it's, um, 
most most people suffering chronic pain, you know, they don't need techniques thrust upon them or psychological frameworks thrust upon them. They just need compassionate, sensible conversations and the right kind of guidance. And it just becomes so clunky and clinical and, and you know, everyone's sort of people flying their flags for, for different therapies. And, and, you know, most of them all have similar things going on anyway. And there's nothing new to me. You know, I haven't seen anything new for young most things are sort of based on deep listening and Buddhist philosophy and, and principles and, and and being kind and compassionate and, and there um, and just being very sensible about helping people to see things as they are and to, to move forward. Um, so are you describing this sort of this construct that we have currently in society has been something that's arisen over the last century, century and a half? Because you keep referring back to um, Buddhism several times, but I wonder if the construct we have has really grown since the rise in the pharmaceutical industry in terms of here's pills as a solution. What before pills were so prevalent as a solution, would this way of thinking been more present in the West as well? I don't know. I, I... I, you know, I'm not an authority on the the kind of the the historical aspects of of that. I mean, certainly, that you know, we know some you know terrible things have happened from the pharmaceutical industry around opiates, and, and well, that's very well, very well documented. I think that you know you've got expectations from from people um, when they go and see their doctors, for example. I think doctors are under enormous pressure to to prescribe often and. You know they don't necessarily have the time to to spend you know listening although you know i've worked with you know a number of doctors trying to look at different ways that, that they can they don't have to be skilled at doing a lot of the things that perhaps i might be doing and, and others but they should be able to direct people to towards that but there's a real lack of true specialist chronic pain care a real lack for, especially when you compare to the numbers and um but but a lot of a lot of people a lot of clinicians and therapists are working with people with chronic pain um because you don't need to be specially qualified to do that and it's not regulated at all and you know this is probably an unpopular view but that's the it's it's the reality you know if you had cancer you wouldn't go and see someone who had a special interest in cancer you go and see a specialist, a consultant, an expert, not someone who's has a special interest or, yeah, I see some people with that. Um, you, you'd never do that or diabetes or heart disease. So why with chronic pain do people go? They just go and see all sorts of people for it. Mm. I find that fascinating. You know, I'm always really curious as to why people have made decisions to go and see people and, and often it's because they don't feel they're having they, that that seems like a good idea there's a you know they see some sort of value in it and, and maybe it's even helped um you know i'm not saying it doesn't it doesn't help sometimes but but we need true pain or chronic pain specialists with the right education and the right level of training and, and experience and i feel really, really passionate about that um because i can't see a way forward without more of that happening so one of the things you have done to raise awareness of understanding of pain is 24 ultra marathons in 24 months which still blows my mind <laughs> <laughs> well it's, you know it's 
it's not that big a deal. I don't think, you know, other people who are ultra runners, you know, listening, you know, they'll know what I'm talking about really. You, it, it's just the level you get, you get used to, you know, it's a bit of a climb to get to that point, but once you're there and you've done a few, um, I mean, again, that wasn't planned. It just, I started and just fell in love with it. Um, and so I just, and found myself kind of doing one a month just because that's when the events were coming up and I thought, oh, well, why don't I turn this into a bit of a thing? um for for up from stampaign and and so that's that's what i did so i just kept going i mean most of them were, were what we call solos so because it gets it gets really expensive um and so i would just you know put on my pack get a train somewhere and run some path or or trail um and um yeah i mean it was it's it was an amazing I, I, i've sort of stopped recently because of time I got you know other few other things I want to do. I still run quite a lot, but I I just don't do that anymore. I mean I wouldn't necessarily discount ever doing it again. I must say, but for now. Um, so what were the things you really yeah. learnt from doing just that volume of um, long long runs over a two year period? What did you learn in terms of your understanding? How did it deepen your understanding of a pain experience? Well, I mean, it is often painful. I mean, it's not, I mean, I would never compare it to someone with a, you know, a, a condition or, or suffering with chronic pain because I knew, or I was confident. I mean, you never know for sure, but I was confident that whatever suffering I was going through, you know, on that run, you know, I was going to be okay. With it's it. temporary. Yeah, it would, it would be okay. I'd be fine in a few days. That's that sort of thing. And, and actually, I'm gonna sound weird, but you kind of you you kind of enjoy that um, that aspect of it because you you have to learn to deal with it. You've got to learn to deal with a lot of stuff because you know you're you're out for hours and hours. You might not see anyone for hours and hours, particularly doing the solo stuff, um, and or running through the night or or that sort of thing. And 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 actually, you, you can turn it round into just this most magical of experiences and and a real privilege actually. You know, I'd often that'd be one of the things I would do if I was because you do get grumpy and, and annoyed and what am I doing? And, you know, you have all of that because you have all the emotions coming and going. And sometimes you just have these real waves of emotion where you just, you know, you're running along and you burst into tears or something. Um, but um, but then you remember it's, you know, it's what a privilege that I can actually do this. Mm. You know, that I'm lucky enough to have a body and, and body systems that enable me to to do that. Um, so that's you know a deep sense of gratitude you know you explore your mind you listen to a lot of stuff you know i love i love music so you know i often have music playing and that would lift you at, at times podcasts and things um and um and then you do you do bring those skills into the day-to-day -day, you know resilience dealing with stuff um you know you, you've been going a long time and it's the middle of the night and you can't find that pathway and you know you've got to deal with it get frustrated but the more frustrated the worse it is so you you know creating calm it's very meditative i mean i've meditated for years as well so it's i would often meditate while i was running meditate for hours um so you do you learn you learn a lot about the way that your own mind works and then what you can do to make it work better for you to have better and better experiences um, so and it just brings great appreciation and and of nature, you know, being out in nature. 
I'm very much hearing you describe life as being a felt experience, whereas we're conditioned right from school that it's a thought experience. And what do you think of, I don't know, Henry VIII, whoever, whatever, in every mm -hmm. class. And you're describing, and, and as you're describing those ultra runs, you're describing it as a felt experience of all different aspects of what was involved. Um, I'm aware you've got your book coming out later this year, Richmond, and something that you were quite keen to make sure came across in your book was that it was a, a felt experience. Yeah, because we we feel stuff. And, you know, a lot of people with chronic conditions, they will not necessarily be very connected with their body. And, and that's part of being well, you know, feeling things. And uh, so, well, you know, some of the work I do with people, we'll say some, quite a lot of the work will be around that, you know, when we it might be a visualization or it might be a movement or whatever it is we're doing, how does that feel? And and their response to that is really interesting. You know, some people might say, oh, well, yeah, when I think of that that loved one, I, I feel this lovely warmth in my chest or whatever. But some people will just go, well, I don't feel anything. And that's really interesting because dissociation is really quite common. So it's a protective mechanism to kind of come away from, from the body. But, but we need to be able to feel it because we are embodied. You know, the body provides us with information know what you're feeling now we need to work out you know is that useful information is it accurate um or how accurate is it because it only needs to be good enough of course it's not an exact representation um but nonetheless it's it's information to to act upon pain is information to act upon stiffness is information to act upon and actually when people start to look at it that way they're creating the space they're not immediately suffering as much as thinking oh there's that pain again will it ever go away it's stopping me doing this, that, and the other. It's the thoughts about it that are causing the suffering. Mm. So it's, you know, the felt experience is really important as just how things are, but also as a guide. Yeah. So it's about changing our perception of what pain and suffering are, changing our perception of what the human experience is and how we relate to what is presented to us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, you know, I've learned that through um, my own experiences, but as in actually what I've done, but that's come a lot from hanging out with certain people and listening to certain people. So my other great mentor um, is Mike Pegg. Um, so there's Mick and Mick and Mike. Um, and then very influential people who, who I don't, I don't actually know. I've not, I've not met them, but they, you know, tick. Now, you know, I've read him. I was introduced to him when I was when I was about eighteen, um, and um, Mark Epstein, who's an American psychiatrist and, and Buddhist, and uh, Joseph Goldstein, um, and you know these these guys just do the most fantastic work, um, bringing. I mean, it might sound like I'm I'm really leaning towards Buddhism, but it just offers so many practical insights and ways of doing things, ways of seeing things, because it, that's what it's all about: is to recognise that there is suffering, but there's also a way through it. But we've got to go through it. You can't go around it. And if you keep trying to go around it, you'll just continue to suffer. Um, but we can learn to surf those waves. We can learn to do it better and better. Um, and you know, obviously the, the better you do it, the better your life. And that's really what we want to do. That my message to people is you, you know, you can shape a positive future. 
You just need to know how to do it, ways to do it. And there are loads and loads of different things in different ways. And my job is to kind of listen to that person's needs and then help them on that path and then guide and encourage until they feel confident, independent to, to keep going themselves. Because it's, you know, they, they keep going. It's a route of mastery. There's no there's no absolute end. Well, there is an end point, I suppose. But, um, you know, in terms of while we're alive, um, it's just a continued route of, of mastery, of learning. What would you like the practitioners and practice owners that are listening to um, take away from the conversation that we've had today? Well, I'd, I'd like them to be encouraged in, by, you know, what we know and what it continues to come out, the work that's being done, um, because chronic pain is a massive issue. It needs to be more on the agenda. You know, I, mental health and other things often get the the big headlines. Um but I think there's an issue with that terminology because, again, it's sort of separating mind and body. And and huge numbers of people who experience mental health also suffer with, with chronic pain. So pain needs to be prioritised and under, really understood. So I'd encourage people to, to really learn about it. Or if it's not your bag, because it really isn't for everyone at all, so then make sure that that you know where your boundary is. And if, you find, if you're working with someone who, who is, then... And link up with a with a practitioner or a clinician therapist who who is an expert in the field and, and work work with them. You know, you can all work together to help that that person. And if people would like to hear more from you and follow your work, where can they do that, Richmond? So I'm on I'm on social media a lot. I mean, Instagram's where I post every day, and you know, pretty detailed posts actually with with tips and tools and, and insights. So that's um, at Pain Coach. I, I am on Twitter at Pain Physio. Uh, um probably less so and then if you want to link on linkedin um there's a facebook page um and uh, i i do have a newsletter but it's it's been a bit occasional because of the book that's obviously that's taken up a lot and i've got a few others sort of lined up as well um so yeah if you i mean you google me on my website richmondstace.com you'll find you'll find me sure enough wonderful thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your insights richmond mm-hmm.